0: You'd open your Bibles to the book of Matthew, Matthew, chapter three. we continue to worship you this morning. We come, Lord to the portion of the service where our total focus is on your word and what has been written and preserved for us. Father, we always really do want to have understanding of, of the text. We want, Lord, for you to encourage our hearts. We want to be strengthened. Father, we want to have understanding. We want to know, Lord, why these things have been preserved for us, how they can help us how they enable us to understand you better, your plan better, to understand ourselves better, and what it is that we are to do with our lives. We thank you, Father, again for your great love for us, for your presence, and again that you preserved your word for us. And so, Father, we ask, as we always do, that you'll help us, Lord, as we focus on this. In Christ's name, amen. Matthew 5, I mean Matthew 3, beginning in verse 5, it reads, Then all Jerusalem... god is able from these stones to raise up children for abraham even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees every tree therefore that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire so last week as we began to deal with this passage in matthew 3 and john which is really should be called john the baptizer not really john the baptist we spent some time thinking about the location of john's ministry and why him being in the wilderness was important and what, what that would trigger in the minds of those that were living at that time. And as we, as we looked at that, we looked at Hosea chapter 2, and what we learned from that uh, and what we are to, were to think about was simply this, that the Lord often leads us into the desert where we will be completely separated from those things that we love so that we will be able to concentrate totally on Christ so with that in mind, we want to continue to look at the message of John, because we need to consider the other, what I would call the other side of the word repent. So, so the appeal, when you're asking others to repent, to turn away from sin and to turn to God is not just because sin makes you unhappy. Now that's true, sin does in the long term make you unhappy, but that's not just the appeal that we're making individuals, that we just want you to have a happy life and you need to turn to Christ. It's a great byproduct of turning to Christ, but that's not what we're merely asking them to do. We don't want them to understand that sin just makes you unhappy and can create a mess in your life. What we want to make sure we don't miss, which is ignored by many, it is a truth that can make people uncomfortable, and that's the truth that sinners are rightly under the judgment of God. Judgment is what we don't want to hear about and what we would rather ignore there are times when individuals hear christians bring up the word judgment they kind of roll their eyes like you know not that again sometimes it's christians that do that as if somehow we spend all of our time talking about judgment we really don't it is a reality It, it is it's a segment of life that cannot be ignored so we need to make sure that we don't have this attitude that somehow oh here we go again because it is not here we go again this is an important message for us. In verse 2 of Matthew 3, it's kind of a summary of John's message, where it just simply says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So in verse 7, what happens is we have a little more details given concerning the message that he was giving. So before we get into the details, though, I want to mention what verse 7 mentions, and that's the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And we've heard before about Uh, The various groups of men, the the leadership of Israel, and they were primarily divided into these two groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I'll give you a few differences, but in your bulletins on page four, uh, there's a longer article that kind of details the differences uh, between these two groups. And it is helpful to know those things. But the Pharisees basically affirmed both God's sovereignty and human responsibility and human freedom. They had a pretty good view of that. The Sadducees denied God's sovereignty. Uh, In fact, they were adamant in their affirmation of what you might call libertarian free will for human beings. In other words, it's a view that the choices that people make are free from any prior cause, and that our fallen sinful nature does not constrain moral choices. In other words, human free will is completely free to choose to receive or reject Christ as well as to choose to do anything among the various options that you have in life, and that such choices are in no way determined by circumstances or our nature or our desires. Which, by the way, that being their view, you can't even defend that philosophically, much less biblically. But that was kind of their push, was that. The Pharisees did believe that the body would be raised from the dead, The Sadducees were a nihilist. They just believed that when you died, that was it. The Pharisees believed in angels and demons. The Sadducees did not believe in angels and demons. So that's a few of the differences, and there's more there in your notes. But they did make up the leadership of Israel. They were the individuals that people looked to uh, when they were wanting to understand God's will for their life. They were the individuals that people would look at to be examples for their children. Uh, Now, the Pharisees greatly outnumbered the Sadducees, and so the Pharisees were kind of everywhere, Uh, and so it would not be uncommon for mothers or fathers to point to some of the Pharisees on the street uh, and want their children to emulate those men. They were viewed as being, when it it came to being religious uh, and kind of having it all together and being godly, they're the ones. That's what you need to be like. And you would even be proud if one of your boys turned out to be a Pharisee. Pharisees were, now these groups, by the way, besides what kind of sets them apart, these are intelligent individuals. They're not dumb. Now, there are times that Jesus kind of makes them look dumb, but, but they're not dumb individuals. These, these individuals, they're smart. And, you know, they're, they're scribes, they're, they're the academics, they're like religious lawyers, at least the, most of the Pharisees were. They know the Old Testament. In fact, remember that they probably had a majority, if not the entire Old Testament memorized. I mean, it was, there was a unique class of individuals. But when John sees them coming, he describes both of these groups as a brood of vipers. Did John say this in reference to their cunning behavior? Or, as some commentators say, he was making reference to their association with the devil, basically saying, the devil is your father. Well, I believe that he's making reference to their behavior, because verse 8, he emphasizes that they need to bear fruit, In keeping with repentance when John says later even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees this kind of pictures a man with an axe he's gripped the axe he's placed the blade against the root because he wants to ensure a very accurate cut and he's readying himself to sever the root with a powerful swing that's the picture in their mind so this person with the axe would not be me uh, because though I can swing it hard, I can even aim and still miss completely. Uh, so that's not a good picture. But this is the individual who's a skilled axeman, and so they, they understand what this is picturing for them. Judgment is at the ready. The blade is already out. It's already being measured. The decision is being made to swing and the cut. So thinking about all this, what's going on here? We know that John is preaching repentance. Why are the Pharisees and Sadducees out there? You know, why is John calling them these names? Well, in verse 7 when it says, he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, and we read that in the ESV, that that can be a little misleading in a sense. They weren't coming for baptism in the sense they were coming to be baptized. That's not what they were doing. Uh, when, um, When you read it, in the uh, Holman translations, it says, When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to the place of his baptism. That's really what it's talking about. In the literal translation, it says, And having seen many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming about his baptism. That's what's going on. They have, they've come out there, and they want to see what's going on. They are there to investigate because there's been quite a stir. You know, Israel is a small place. And, and, and so here's this guy this in a sense, this wild man, that's out in the desert preaching, and people are flocking. They're going out to this guy, and he is calling people to repentance, and he's baptizing people, and they are getting in line. I mean, they're responding to this man. They're responding to his message. So, so what, what's going on here? Well, there's, there's a couple of things to kind of keep in mind. And I'll bring this up a few times as we work our way through Matthew. Hopefully you won't get tired of it, but I think it really helps us in understanding the chronology of events that takes place and what's going on in the mind of the people and in the mind of the Jewish leaders as Christ is living his life, performing his miracles and teaching. So these Pharisees and Sadducees, they're not just out there because they're just curious. That's not what's going on. Remember that, that many different groups in Israel are looking for the Messiah to come. And, and there's kind of a, you know, there'll be movements from time to time where that would be more on the minds of the people than at other times. Uh, in our country, there's been, there's been different times when prophecy is a big thing. When I was in high school, back in the 70s, I know it's hard to imagine how long ago that was, but in the 70s, I mean, there were prophecy conferences everywhere. I mean, there was all, that was, you know, if you were familiar with Hal Lindsey, um, uh, Jack Van Impey, all those guys were at the height of their popularity, always talking about you know, the coming of the rapture and, and the uh, one-world government and the coming of the Antichrist. And there was just all this fervor that was out there and all this interest in the coming of Christ. And, it, and it's not that we no longer believe in the coming of Christ. We do. But the, the fad or the fever picture that kind of waned. And then it came back a little bit in the 80s. And then it's never quite as strong as it was in the 70s, and then it faded. And so it comes back and forth. So there's different times in the ebb and flow of life where there's a greater emphasis on certain things. And so during this time, because of Roman occupation, the Jews have been in Roman occupation for a long time. They're getting tired of this. And then when they read the Old Testament, they read of a deliverer coming, and they're wanting this. Remember that to be a, a Jewish individual living under Roman tyranny, because that's really what it was. So let's say that there's a couple of Roman soldiers walking down your street. So let's say you live on Burnside Island and we're under Roman tyranny. A couple of Roman soldiers go marching down the street and they get hungry. They decide that they want you to feed them. They, just, they don't knock on your door. They just come in. They don't ask you to feed them. They tell you to feed them. Or they just grab what they want. There's nothing you can do. That's, that's not considered abuse it's considered their right to do that and so you might be even thawing out some uh you know a pre-cooked turkey for dinner and they decide wow that looks really good i'm famished and down there goes it's gone and they want to take some more back to the barracks for their buddies there's there's nowhere to go to complain you're you're you're, you know you, you send your kids off to school and all of a sudden they grab your son he's 16 years old they go you look like a strong young man here carry my pack and they give you their they're and He's got to carry, he's got to, doesn't matter if he's going to school, he's got to go with them until they release him. And this is going on like all the time. And if they want to have fun, you know, you're, you see some old man out there raking his yard and they, and they just knock him down and then break his rake. They can laugh and go on about their business. There's no one, there's no one to call. There's no one to complain to. There's nothing anybody can do. And all of those things are mild compared to the kind of pressure they're under, you know, the, the taxes that you're under, you know, to pay for the Roman government and the soul. I mean, it just, it just continues. And so they're, they're, they're looking for a, a Messiah. They want to come. So now John the Baptist is out in the wilderness preaching and he's talking about the Messiah coming. He is so popular and there's, there's so many people going out to hear him. There's even rumors that he might be the Messiah. Remember, that's going to be dealt with later uh, when, when people come up and they ask, Uh, John directly some questions, so there's some stuff that's going on. So the leadership of Israel, they kind of had a methodology that they would follow whenever there was a stir in the community or the community at large. uh, They kind of had a messianic flavor to it. So here's this guy John in the wilderness. They think of Hosea chapter two. Think about what we talked about: how the belief was that God would, would in a sense take Israel out into the desert. Uh, and renew this relationship just before the Messiah would come. He's preaching about the coming of the Messiah. There's this baptism to repentance, and there's hordes of people going out to hear him. So the methodology that the leadership would follow is they would do what they would call messianic investigations. These They were official. and they would send out a group of uh, from, their, from the leadership. You know, the, San, the Sanhedrin was about 70 individuals, but there would be those who would kind of work with them. And then again, they were made up of both Pharisees and Sadducees, and they would send a group out to investigate what was going on. They wanted firsthand information, a report to be given back to the Sanhedrin, the leadership, as to what is the movement, what do you think about it, what is it that's going on, and what is not going on. That's why they're there. It's not an accident that they're there. They're there to listen intently. What is John actually preaching? These people are getting baptized. What are they getting baptized for? You know, what, what, what's going on with this? Is this something we have to be concerned about even politically? Is it going to hurt our popularity? You know, one of the reasons why they didn't like Jesus was because the way that he would teach things would kind of diminish their popularity at times. And so all these different things are going on. And so during the first, and there's three stages to the uh, investigation, so the first one is just basically observation. And so that's why at times when John's around and then when Jesus is around, you'll see some Pharisees and Sadducees always showing up, but they don't say anything. They might talk among each other, but they don't ask any questions, because that's the first stage. It's just observation. They're just there to observe. And the way that it would work is, is once this first stage would be over, they would then go back to the Sanhedrin, make this report, and then they would decide if this was a movement of significance. If it was not significant, they would just ignore it. If it was, they would send maybe the same group, or maybe they would add to the group or what have you, but they would send a group again out for the next stage of the investigation. And so when we come to that, I'll point that out and we'll talk about how they conduct themselves in the second stage of the Messianic uh, investigation. But part of the importance of that will help us to see and understand why Jesus said some of the things that he said and why the leadership responded the way they did at certain times. So John the Baptist is, is out there preaching and he sees this group come out. They're there. He knows that they're there to kind of check things out. And So he says to them, Uh, at the the, um, end of verse seven, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping of repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So this phrasing, don't say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father is probably an allusion to Isaiah 51, verses 1 and 2. Let me read those verses to you. Isaiah says, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were, you were hewn, and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. Now, two things with this passage. Number one, the text here in Isaiah is insisting that Abraham was not chosen for his greatness. He was just one guy. Remember, he's just a nomad. He's just one guy. He was only one. But the reason why this is alluded to is because of the theology that the Jews had drawn out of this. Now, their theology wasn't all bad, but there were some things that were pretty bad. And one of them was this. One of the teachings and i am not even going to try to pronounce the, the jewish word for it but one of the teachings is is that if you were born jewish you were automatically in the kingdom didn't matter what was going to go on in your life no matter how poorly you behaved though they were never going to encourage that you were going to be in the kingdom because you could trace your lineage to abraham and because you were a direct descendant of abraham you were in which is why john he knows that He says, that's why he says, don't presume to say to yourself, Abraham is a father. He's saying, don't don't count on that. He says, they're thinking that there's no way God's going to wipe them out. They are his chosen ones. Abraham is a father. There are no others. So being Jewish, I'm going to make it. In the end, I'm going to be in the kingdom. I'm not going to miss it. People today, they still have a similar kind of belief, whether you're Jewish or not. I'm going to make it. In the end, I'm really going to make it because I'm just not that bad. In fact, if you want to feel better about yourself, drive by the jail and say, I'm not there. I'm here. Right? There's people now, people don't do that on purpose, but I mean, people do think that, you know, they say, well, I haven't committed any crimes. I haven't been arrested. I haven't stolen from anybody. You know, we go on and on with that. And there's people who actually think in the end, they don't really think a whole lot about it. But back in their mind somewhere, there is this belief that they really are going to make it, and and that's even bolstered if you do come to church. Well, oh, I, I I go to church, like that's some big accomplishment, you know. God's in heaven, going, whoa, look at Tom, he's in church every Sunday, impressive. I think I'll make sure he gets to heaven. That's not what God's doing. That's not how that it works. But there's people, but people think that way. Individuals. Uh, Are thinking that they're not, again, they're not that bad. Deep down, I really am kind. Deep down, I really am nice. I really would do anything for anybody. I mean, I, I haven't, but I would if I was asked. And I may make mistakes, but I'm not evil. Well, not so fast, my friend. Because what John the Baptizer says to these individuals is so you're banking on the fact. that that you can trace your lineage to Abraham and he's your father, God can turn these stones. Now, Palestine's a pretty rocky place, from what I've been told. There's just rocks, like, everywhere. And he says, so God can raise up children from these. God doesn't need you for that. That That carries no weight. That's why John says that. Jesus says it, actually, in a stronger way later. And when we get to that, we'll point that out. So John then immediately turns to their behavior and says... Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit. Because fruit speaks of actions and words that express, in this context, genuine repentance. In fact, he says every tree. There's no exceptions to this. No works revealing genuine repentance equals physical destruction. It will follow. God is aware of and watching everything that we do. And it matters. And it makes a difference. Now even though he talks about these, the, the, these uh, the tree that doesn't bear fruit is going to be destroyed, the Greek word that's used for fire in verse 10 is just a general word for fire. But verse 12 gives us a contextual clue because it describes this as an unquenchable fire. And so that pictures the fire that's reserved for unbelievers. Matthew 3, verses 11 and 12, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, "...whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire." When John says this, when he says, "...whose sandals I am not worthy to carry," uh, the New American Standard says, "...I am not fit to remove his sandals." And the Holman says, I am not worthy to take off his sandals. So there's a slight difference there, but it's really important. And it's important in this way. In the culture of the Hebrew people, and I don't think they're the only ones who think this way, but it was viewed as being a very lowly job to carry someone's shoes or sandals. But for the Jews, there was something even lower than that. And they actually had some... I guess you'd say some, some rules, that if you were a slave, because sometimes an individual could be Hebrew and become a slave. You could become a slave to a Roman because of whatever. Maybe you're in debt. Uh, there's different kinds of things that would cause slavery. But if you were a slave and you were a Hebrew, you would never be allowed to remove the sandals from your master's feet. That was just, that was the lowliest, most humiliating thing that they could imagine. Is you, you don't do that. And so a Jewish man who's a slave would be willing to be executed for not doing that. They, they were not allowed to remove the sandal uh, from that because it was so low. And so the rabbis insisted that the Hebrew slave would not even perform that. So what, what John is doing, the reason why he brings that up, is remember that John the baptizer is viewed with a great deal of respect. John knows, John, John's not out there pretending that people don't respect him because there's all the people coming out to the, to listen to him. So he's kind of got a clue that they're hanging on to every word he has and he's, he's, he's convinced, because he is, he's a prophet sent from God and what he speaks carries weight. And so he knows they've come out to hear him. He knows they have a lot of respect for him. He's viewed as a great man. He knows that. And he wants them to know how great the Messiah is. And the Messiah is so great that he's not even worthy to remove his sandal. So he's giving that. So in their minds, this contrast is huge. It's it's gigantic. I I don't even know what we would have in our culture that would even come close to that. I guess we could say something like, you know, this person's so great, I'm not even worthy enough to clean their toilet. We kind of view that as kind of a low thing. Or if you work in a hospital, I'm not even worthy enough to change their bed. Don't want to get too graphic Gonna have lunch in a little while. But anyway, uh, that's kind of the idea. And so we we want the individuals to understand. And so he knows, you think I'm great. And you have this respect for me. And I'm here giving you a message from God. But he is so much greater than I that I can't even do this. And that's what he wants them to understand and think. And this great one, this great one that I'm pointing to, this Messiah, I'm baptizing you with water. When he comes, he will baptize both with the Holy Spirit and fire, or the fire of judgment. So according to John's message, everyone undergoes one baptism or the other. A believer will be baptized by the Holy Spirit, unbelievers by fire. John's baptism was preparatory. And with water, divine baptism was final. It was the final decision. First Corinthians 12:13 says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into the one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free... And all were made the drink of one spirit. So as believers, all of us have been baptized into the body of Christ by the Spirit of God. We would say that all of us as believers, whether you have been a believer for 30 years or if you've been a believer for 30 minutes, if you are a child and you're 9 years old or you're 19 or you're 39, if you're a Christian, the Spirit of God lives in you. That's an amazing thing to think about. God is indwelling you. He's always with you and will never leave you. Now, would John's hearers, would they know what he was talking about when he said, I baptize with water, but there's one coming who baptized with the Holy Spirit with fire? Yes, they did. Let me read to you from the book of Isaiah. Remember again that the audience that John is speaking to and the same audience that Jesus will be speaking to, they're, they're not just very religious and that they attend, you know, the synagogue and the temple when they're supposed to. These are individuals, again, when they were schooled, uh, from the time they started school until they were about 10 or 12 years old, they only were taught the Old Testament. And they were working on memorizing the Bible. And that wasn't them to religious zealots, but again, as I think I shared with you before, the idea was is that whatever you were going to do in life, if you were a person of integrity, if you were a godly, righteous person, then you would be okay. And so their goal was to make sure their children were these kinds of individuals. So they only taught them the Old Testament until that time. And then when you would get between somewhere between 10 and 12, then you would go and learn. If you're a young man, you'll go and learn a trade. Uh, unless you were maybe picked by the Pharisee or the rabbi to go on the further schooling because they said, yeah, this one, he's got his stuff together. We think he might... He might be a rabbi one day or a Pharisee or what have you. So that was kind of the idea. So, 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 what I'm about to read you, they were familiar with. Many of them would have known exactly where to find this. Isaiah 66, verses 15 and 16. For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury, and his rebuke with uh, flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh. And those slain by the Lord shall be many. So they understood this this idea of judgment and fire. They knew that God would have stories in their history of God judging his people and God judging the enemies of Israel. They believed in judgment. One of the things we should ask ourselves as Christians is, do you believe? Do you really believe there's going to be a judgment one day? I know it's a nice idea, especially if we're not the one being judged. We think of all the people that are out there that are evil. And we're like, man, I can't wait till they get what's coming to them. I mean, you're going to be honest, right? There are certain people we think that about. We want them to get what's coming. All right? we, 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 are, we, we are hoping there's a judgment. Well, there's a judgment. But we need to make sure we ask ourselves, do you really believe there's a judgment? And remember, no matter how hard you want to believe there's a judgment for others, then that means there's a judgment for you. No, it's not, it's not a judgment for only some people. All sin will be judged. All sin. All sin must be judged. Remember that as Christians, we do not believe that our sin goes unpunished. What we believe is that our sin was punished in Christ. He was my substitute. So there is no God looking the other way or pretending that I've not done wrong. No, he poured his wrath out on Christ as if he had committed the sins I have committed and I will commit. So we believe that no sin goes unpunished. All sin would be punished. There is judgment that is coming. I think I've told you before that uh, there is this idea. Immanuel Kant came up with this. He was asked a question one day about what it was that he believed gave, gave meaning to life. And I, I don't know if he was a Christian or not. There's people who argue either way. It, we're not going to, A, we're not going to figure it out, and B, we're not going to change nothing because he's already gone. Uh, but Emmanuel Kant was this philosopher, and he said that, that he believed that what gave life meaning was perfect justice. He was said, perfect justice? And, he, and so he, he then went on and said this. What we already know is that perfect justice does not exist. There is no perfect justice. So what must there be for there to be perfect justice? And so he started, started going on this little thing that, well, there has to be life after death. Because if, if there's no perfect justice in this life, there has to be a, another life. There has to be a coming judgment. So there's life after death, and there is a coming judgment. Because there are those who do things that deserve to be punished, and they've gotten away with it. And so for, for life to have meaning, there must be a judgment. And for there to be a judgment, there must be life after death. But not only do you have to have life after death and a judgment, you have to have a judge. But it just can't be any old judge. It has to be a judge who knows everything. Because even today we know that there may be a judge who he doesn't know everything. There still may be things that are hidden. And so we know there are those who are guilty who do get away with things. There are times that there are those who are innocent of certain things, who are incarcerated. We're not saying that doesn't happen. But there are those who are guilty of certain things and because of the laws and all these different kinds of things we have going on and our own imperfections and our lack of knowledge, there are those who get away. So so there must be not only life after death and a judgment, there must be an all-knowing judge. But it's got to be one more thing. He's got to be all-powerful. There can be nothing that exists that can prevent the judge from executing the sentence. If there is no one to execute the sentence, then there's no justice. And I think I've shared with you before that sometimes I wonder when I think about these things, when, when a family has a, let's say, a child who is taken from them, and the police never find the child, they never find the body, and you're left wondering. I mean, it, to me, that's kind of a, an anguish that just never, ever goes away, never and it would be insanely difficult to live with. And I've heard people that just from listening to interviews, they're probably not Christians, but there's this idea in their mind that many of them cling to, and that is this. I don't know what happened to my kid, but I know this. The ones who took him or her, they will get what's coming to them one day. Where does that come from? I think it's placed there by God. There is a verse in Ecclesiastes that says that God has placed eternity in their heart. There's this idea that we have that there is life after death and there is a judgment and there is an all knowing, all powerful God and there will be perfect justice. The sad thing is somehow we think it's only the perverted kidnapper that's going to be served justice and not everyone else. And so we have that sense. And that is what gives meaning to life. So then it matters what we do because no one's going to get away, from, get, a, get away with anything. We will be rewarded for those things we're not rewarded for and we will be judged for those things we've not been judged for. And so all of us face a choice between two baptisms, two different baptisms. There's a baptism of the Spirit or a baptism of fire. And so those who are sinners... Those who are unrepentant sinners, those who are not Christians, should repent without delay so they can receive the baptism of the Spirit of God. The Spirit who indwells you will radically change your life. They will radically, he will radically change your character and your behavior, and you will produce the good fruit of righteousness. A refusal to repent ensures that the sinner will suffer the baptism of fire, which is a frightening but just eternal judgment. It's a real thing, and we need to remember that the coming judgment is real, hell is a real place, and people really do go there. And why we must renew our efforts as we pray for those who don't know Christ, that God would open their eyes. And that may be some of you here today, that you, for whatever the reason, you've put this idea of God's judgment on the back burner, or you just don't think about it, or you think, ah, there's just just no, this is not going to happen. Kind of like you know when they used to say that Mount St. Helens wasn't really going to blow up. Eventually, they all left except for one old man. Remember, there was this famous story. The guy was in his 80s, living in a cabin in the woods. I've lived here my whole life. It's not going to blow. Well, when it blew, he was dead. I think in less than two seconds, because of that blast, the uh, hot ash that blew out the side of the mountain, was moving at over 200 miles an hour. It's pretty quick, by the way. And he was gone. So it's coming. Those of us who are saved should rejoice. Not rejoice that sinners will be judged. Rejoice that we've been spared that by Christ and God's love for us. And ask God to give us a burden, even a burden for those that we don't like. I think I shared with you before, my working in the jail as a chaplain, there was a time when I was talking to a young man and for whatever reason he decided to confess to me what he had done and as he's telling me what he had done, in my mind I was literally thinking I don't want this guy to get saved that's not very Christian I was in my late 20's I was literally thinking this guy's a scumbag and he was he was And I didn't want him to get saved. I want him to go to hell. Because of what he had done. In fact, I had told myself, in my mind, I was not even going to give him the gospel. I know that sounds horrible. And it is. It is horrible. I wasn't going to do it. But you know, God spoke to Balaam through a donkey. And so my mouth opened. And out it came. The gospel to this day i'm convinced that god just took over i wasn't speaking in tongues it was none of that but i gave the gospel Amen. but my flesh was still in it and i told this guy i said if you come to christ you can't lie i mean i went through a whole bunch of things about what you can and can't do when you become a christian and when i finished he said, I need forgiveness of my sins. <laughs> Great. He says, I want to give my life to Christ right now. Don't you want to sleep on it, pal? No, I didn't say that. So we prayed, and he gave his life to the Lord. And I know a lot of guys in that situation, what we might call them a false conversion, and they happen. I've seen lots of them. His was genuine. And you know what he did? He got a lawyer, went to court, told the judge, I'm pleading guilty. The judge asked him why. He said, I've become a Christian. I can't lie. And it's pretty amazing. He's done his time, he's out. We're even Facebook friends. He's married, raises kids, they all lead worship in the church, still live in Hawaii. It's pretty great. God is good. God is powerful. Don't deny the power of God in your life or in the lives of others. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for the message of John. And Father, many of us, maybe, maybe most of us, understand that there are clearly two baptisms that he was talking about. And for those of us who believe, Father, we have been baptized by your spirit into the family of God. And for that, we thank you. We thank you, Father, for saving us and for forgiving us of all of our unrighteousness and punishing our sin in Christ. And Father, for those here today who may not have given their lives to Christ, who may not have trusted Christ for salvation, Father, we ask that your spirit would indeed convict them of their need of Christ. Pray, Lord, that would see clearly that they really are sitting under the judgment of God, that it's a very real thing. Not, Lord, that they will live in fear. Father, they will run to your arms, the only place of safety there is, and come to you on your terms. Father, as always, we thank you for your great patience with us. We pray, Lord, you would help us to be both bold and patient with others. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.